Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Benjamin Thompson from The Nature Podcast here. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Starting Up in Science. Now, this one is a bit different from the main four podcasts in the series. Here we're going to go behind the scenes and do a deep dive into how four nature reporters followed the wins and losses and the trials and tribulations of two researchers. One of those reporters was me, but I'm joined by the other three. Kerry Smith. Hello. Heidi Ledford. Hello. And Richard Van Norden. Hello. Now, I guess we're about to start discussing it, but just a quick PSA for the listeners. Before you go any further, I really suggest you go back and listen to the Starting Up in Science podcast series or have a read of the written feature over on nature.com slash news or the rest of this discussion won't make a huge amount of sense to you. But with that being said, I guess, where where do we start, everyone? I mean, at the, at the beginning, I suppose... Um, how did starting up in science start? Now, Kerry, I know this was something that you were very much at the front of. Yeah, so this was an initiative that came out of the features team. And I think it's something that's been discussed before, the idea that we might want to follow scientists over a longer period of time than we usually do. Lots of our stories rely on you know momentary findings. And we thought, well, science doesn't really work like that. Why don't we see if we can find some people who'd be up for telling us the story of what it's like to start up in science and do science and we'll have a look at how long that takes and we'll try and examine the the process rather than the results. Yeah, I've gone back through my inbox and the first mention of what became this project, the subject line on the email was month in the life of a lab and that was from November 2017. (laughs) Listeners will know at this point that this project went on for a lot longer than that. I think to add to what Kerry said so often, even when we tell the history of something, it's very much looking back and saying how we got to this moment. We've just done a history of mRNA vaccines and all the many scientists that contributed to that. And at the time, clearly, you know, none of them perhaps knew when the big breakthroughs would come and it was built on slowly over decades. But even then, we're looking back and saying, here's what led up to this big moment. And here we're just going upstream and saying, whatever comes will come and we'll see what turns out. Yeah, and I think that's maybe a very different way of of doing reporting, just seeing what turns up, right, without maybe a, a defined goal we were looking for. But maybe before we get into that, let's let's talk a little bit about Ali and Dan. Why did we decide to follow them in particular? So again, if we go back to sort of November 2017, when we were thinking about this project, obviously, we found them since then. Yeah, so the way that we 
chose them is that we started polling a whole bunch of nature staffers and we put out calls and we said, do you know any scientists who are in, you know, interesting times? Are they starting their lab? Are they retiring? Have they just failed to get funding? Have they just won a big chunk of funding? And we assembled a really giant list and we started calling a few people. We quickly realized that it wasn't going to be very practical to do this kind of in-depth project if we weren't physically close to these people. So we had to rule out, sadly, because of where the team that was going to be taking on this project was based, we had to rule out people in far-flung areas of the world and concentrate our search more locally. And, you know, after having a first few calls with a a few candidates and, crucially, finding people who said yes to this. um, (laughs) Which is remarkable, I think. (laughs) At the time, we didn't say it was going to be three years. I think we probably said a year tops. But even that length of time is when you're a new lab head, you don't know what's coming for you. Uh, It's a lot to want to share that with someone. And, uh, you know, Ali and Dan basically came out of that search. Do you remember a sense of of really what we were trying to convey? What was the feeling that we were trying to get across, do you think? The uh, slow grind of what it's like to do science and the many barriers that are in the way of success and how a scientist starting up their own lab has to be many kinds of people in one, you know, like a teacher, a fund administrator, a startup person making an elevator pitch, a mentor, and of course, a researcher, and, you know, people with their own families, and all of these sort of personas are just rolled into one. It's just such a difficult job to have. And all without any necessarily secure contract not knowing that in, you know, where in a few years you're going to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think also, um, in addition to how difficult that road can be, also the motivation and and the sort of excitement of doing science. And the reason it's hard to get these jobs is because so many people want them, which I hope is also in the story. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is a uniquely personal story. But maybe let's talk about our first visit. And uh, 31st of May 2018 uh, was when we went up. We got the train up to Sheffield, all, all, all four of us, and uh, and some of the art team came up as well to take some photographs. I mean, what were we expecting, do you think, from, from this first moment? Because obviously we spoke to them on email, we spoke to them on the phone a little bit, but they didn't know us. We didn't know them. Yeah, I was amazed from the start how candid they were and how actually relatively relaxed, I think, given that, you know, you've got all these people following you around and asking you questions. I mean, there was, you know, maybe a little bit of trepidation at the beginning, but I just all the way throughout the project, but especially at the beginning, I was surprised by um, how open they were. Yeah. And I would say it really came across when Richard and I went to talk to Ali and we had her try to explain, you know, what her scientific aims were and we tried to understand them. And she was just really into it. I mean, it was so nice to see. She was really clearly very motivated by her science and really excited by it. In terms of the process of going about this, in your experience, is this how you would go about a project? Just go up and see someone and then keep going to see them and see where it stops. I think we thought we might follow them for a year and then see what happened. And then we thought two years. And by that point, it was getting a little bit of a strain on resources because it had been a long time. But, you know, they hadn't published a paper yet. There wasn't anything concrete to sort of say, well, here's where the story should end. But, you know, that was the beauty of this as well as this like fear behind this project is that they were going on a journey, but we didn't know what kind of journey and we didn't know what kind of shape it was going to be. Do you guys remember some of the the rides back to London from Sheffield where we would sit and we would talk about how is this story going to end and what is it going to say? And, you know, you know, and we just couldn't see it at the time. And then I think over time, we, we got quite involved in the funding applications. And we saw that as maybe a logical stopping point. But we were also, you know, sort of on the edge of our seats waiting to see how things were going to turn out and everything. So it was yeah, it was an interesting experience because we really didn't know where this thing was going. Mm, I mean, I, I do think you're right that, that funding is such a central part of this story and it's really hard to avoid it. Yeah, I think also the fact that, you know, we ended up sort of waiting so long for a resolution to some of those funding applications, it, it kind of shows also, you know, one reason why it takes a long time to get a paper out. 
because the the researchers have to wait for these funding cycles, and it's a long time by the time you've written the grant and then submitted it and it's reviewed, and there's so many steps along the way. Yeah, I guess we thought at the beginning we didn't know whether it was going to be funding that was the driving kind of force behind the narrative or publishing papers or them becoming managers of teams. We, we didn't really know which aspect of that was going to give us the most uh, interest and the most jeopardy, but certainly it became quite clear that money was you know, the biggest preoccupation. Heidi, you and I have worked in labs before, and I guess maybe I wasn't necessarily too surprised by the science of the enterprise, right? I know that it's slow and I know that you need to get the money and all the rest of it. Kerry and Richard, was was that something that stood out to you at all? I mean, I guess we've worked in and around science for a long time, right? But was there anything about how science happens in a, in a very real sense that was interesting or unexpected? Yeah, I think the pace was a little unexpected, even for us having worked at nature for as long as we have. We should know more than we perhaps uh, do about it. And Richard has been, I think, continually surprised during this project of how long it's taken them to get some science done. I keep <laughs> remembering you saying, when are they going to publish a paper? When yeah, I mean, spot the person, me, who didn't actually do a PhD. But, um, <laughs> you know, I was amazed that uh, we've come to this project now in 2021. And Dan and Ali's groups haven't yet published a paper of the science that's been done during their labs. It's coming, I'm sure. But that's partly because a lot of their work has just been about setting up the tools in order to examine the thing that they want to be doing and to show that that is possible. Um, and that's par for the course. I haven't, I haven't, didn't do a PhD either, so some of this was new to me. I actually felt sometimes bad asking them, like, so any new results, any new papers? Because I could sort of feel like they were like, oh, well, nothing really to report, some incremental stuff. Um, yeah, and that made me feel a bit kind of cringe asking those questions. Yeah, I mean, when you report, you're just always reporting on some exciting thing that has happened. I mean, otherwise, why are you reporting it? In this case you know, things didn't happen. And in some cases, things went backwards. Ali's microscopy experiments were going well, and then they just didn't work at all. And all of the progress she thought she'd made looked like it could be undone. And that's just the way things are. Mm. So just seeing that happen, you know, and hey, maybe in five or 10 years, some of this is going to result in in a story. And and all of what we've looked at here will be passed over as in the early years, they struggled. Yeah. Don't you read methods sections quite differently now? Because when they say, we decided to engineer a line of mice that la la la. And you're like, mm. oh, my God, that probably took you seven years. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe just to add a counterpoint to Richard and Carrie's experience, you know, for me, if they had gotten a really solid paper out within three years of starting a lab from scratch, I would have been kind of surprised, actually. And I think, you know, Ben and I maybe have personal experience with being hung up on some of these basic molecular biology steps in a lab where you've planned this beautiful experiment and then all of a sudden just this, the most basic step that you didn't even give a second thought isn't working and you're stuck there for months. And Ali and, and Dan opened the doors and let us be there and stick a microphone underneath their nose in these moments when they were trying to, you know, get something to work. I mean, that, that's kind of interesting as well for a couple of reasons for me. One is when we talk to our editors, they're like, so what happened? Well, nothing like, when's it coming out? Well, we don't know yet. Like, it's, it's difficult to sort of plan it in. But also, there's more personal, maybe, than there is science, both in the written one and, and in the podcast as well. So, I mean, did that require a bit of different thinking for you all? Or did you find it quite rewarding in sort of flipping it around in, in that way, given that we often don't get a chance to? I mean, I think the personal is really fun to write about when it comes to just sitting down and writing. And it sort of takes very little writing because you just, it's the reporting, right? And it's the details are just so, I guess, emotionally interesting. But I think as far as the reporting goes, I think we asked them a lot of questions about science for a long time. <laughs> I think it took us a while to sort of realize, oh, we're actually going to strip out a lot of that and focus more on the personal details. And um, yeah, so they were very patient with us. You know, I was there for a lot of the interviews with Dan and uh, 
you know, we just had him go through it over and over and over again. Um, and then in the end, you know, just a few sentences in the story. But it does help you to understand if there is an incremental advance, or it looks yeah. incremental to us, but they're very excited about it. It does at least allow us to put that across to readers in the way that it should be put across. So maybe some of the work. <laughs> I guess maybe the microscope scene with Dan is a good example of that. He, he's obviously, you know, quite quite a softly spoken guy. He doesn't necessarily go, you know, full punch in the air. Seeing that microscope sample, being like the first person ever, I think Richard, you, I think it was either you or me who said, are you the first person on earth who's ever seen this? And he was like, yeah, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, that's the nice part of science, I think, when it finally works. But also they were very, very generous with their time for some very personal moments as well, of course. And, and it would easy to say, look, I can't talk to you now. Like I've been turned down for this million pound grant. Ben, I just don't want to talk to you right now. But they were so gracious with, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, for them to say... Yes, I'll talk to you before and after every single interview for, you know, this million pound grant that could sink or float my lab. And imagine yourself in the same situation, so much adrenaline. And, you know, they were so generous with their time in those moments. Well, one thing that I've been reading up a little bit about before we have this chat, I've been delving into the world of quantum mechanics, because of course I have, right? Why wouldn't I have done uh, ahead of a chat about following two scientists for three years? And the observer effect, right? So if you look at something, you change it and you can see where you you can see where i'm going with this one right and so often when we're reporting we're not part of the story we're telling the story we're we're to one side as best we can be right but this one is very very different have you seen a change in ali and dan as we followed them through these years by observing them by being there with them do you think they've changed well I, i think ali and she has said this herself has become more confident about presenting her science and explaining sort of concisely what it is that she's doing and how it's different from other people. Now, I don't know to what extent that has been due to us repeatedly asking her to explain (laughs) it again. She's also obviously, as as you've heard, had lots of interviews and won a grant and so on. So all of that will will have led into it as well. But I, I do think there was one point at which she did say that having us around had really helped her hone her explanations which did lead us to think hang on a minute have we uh, inserted ourselves in this story but you know in the end if it if it helped it helped and we didn't provide any coaching along the way um at least i don't think we did but i mean in the end we tried as far as we could to simply observe what was happening in the david attenborough sense and you know let them get on with it i think dan said something similar i think for dan it was a matter of explaining things in a way that a non-specialist could understand. Um, And when you've been a postdoc for a long time and you're really immersed in the details and you care a lot about the details and then, you know, becoming better at explaining your research to a wider audience is, I think, part of being a PI as you have to pitch for grants and, um, you know, just explain things to your, your undergraduate students or to other colleagues in other fields. I think it's, it is part of becoming a PI. You know, he says that by talking about it with us, that he feels that he's gotten better at it. But I I think he would have gotten better at it, you know, (laughs) without us. So, you know, it's hard to say. I wonder, and this is speculation, whether knowing that we might ask them about any aspect of their experience and their work has led them to self-examine more. I mean, Ali seems quite big for that anyway, I would say. And I think they both like deeply process what's happening in their lives and they would always have an intelligent response to give you about it. But I think if I was being asked every month what I'd just done in my working life and how everything was, I might start to sort of make more mental notes, I guess. So I couldn't speak for them. And I haven't asked them this question, but I I do wonder if, you know, the experience of being followed, (laughs) it sounds sinister, doesn't it? Um, By four of us. (laughs) And at any moment, you know, wondering if someone's going to ask you a question about something, whether you, you start to sort of 
look at your life a bit differently. And flipping it on its head, do you think it has changed any of oh, yourselves at all, maybe? Because I know aspects of their life very, very clearly, right? But I don't really know them at all, right? Like, we're not friends, but there is that kind of strange sort of aspect to this whole thing as well. I think that's some of the joy of being a journalist. You get to ask those questions, but you've always got to be quite careful about the distance between you and the people you're talking to. And as you say, you're not really their friends. So I would say that on this project, we just got to ask more of those questions over a longer and more sustained period of time, which was almost better because sometimes you have to try and create an instant rapport with someone that, you know, you may not speak to much again. And they were very open to answering those questions. So we got all of this emotional insight that we maybe wouldn't normally get. And I think one episode where there was a lot of sort of emotional insight, and we have to discuss it, but it was Dan's accident when he was very, very sick. And I mean, I speak for all of us. We're really pleased that he's doing okay, right? But I think that's a fine example where I can say when we were on the video chat talking to them and, and they were obviously very, very somber and laying it out, my bottom lip was going. Like I, right. I, was, I was really cut up during that. It was a difficult conversation to have. And obviously, you know, things, as I say, are working out all right. But it really got to me, that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it really did. But it happens to me sometimes. I don't have to know someone for a long time, you know, for those sorts of stories to be hard. And sometimes when we do biomedical reporting and you want to have the perspective of someone who's been directly impacted by a particular medical condition, you know, and you'll talk to, you know, a parent or someone who's directly been affected and, and um, you're trying not to show, I guess, the whole time because you don't want it to be about yourself, right? I mean, there have been times where I'm sort of trying to mm. cry quietly, <laughs> you know, while I talk to them. And I think, um, yeah, that was one of those. That was one of those. Yeah. I mean, in the conversation where he told us, they made a decision to tell us, right? They didn't mm -hmm. need to because there was a little gap between catch-ups and this accident had happened, but he was pretty well recovered by the time we caught up and actually heard the full story. And he was very keen that we did include it in our story and put it across as something that does unfortunately happen to a small amount of people. Yeah, he said it's important to talk about these things. And that's I, I talked to them again this morning. He said the same thing again. You know, I said, I, I, I really hate asking you about this event because I know I feel like I'm making you relive it. He said it's important to talk about these things. Well, I mean, that was clearly something that we had to include Right. And so, it, you know, it kind of had to go in at the end. That was where the chronology was. But of course, the pandemic happened as we were starting to wrap things up as well. I mean, how do you know when a story is finished? Like these are two momentous events that seem really important to include. But is, is there a scenario where we said, no, do you know what? We just can't. Well, I mean, I felt a bit like what I imagine Peter Jackson must have felt like when he was doing Lord of the Rings, because there just seemed to be multiple endings and it could go on and on. <laughs> I mean, of course, he was telling a fictional story. So, you know, I think it was harder for us. But you know, there were events happened and then more events happened and they were all important and critical, really, to charting Ali and Dan's life. And at one point it did seem like we would never stop, but we had to stop. So I think in the end that, you know, once Ali had got her grants, once the labs had gone back and, and once Dan seems to be on the way to recovering, you know, that does seem to be a natural place to end. But we could have carried on for, for longer. Yeah, I think we were probably ready to publish some form of this story when the pandemic really sort of took over everybody's world. And it would have been an, a strange story to publish in the beginning phases of a global pandemic. And it possibly would have just sunk and not been read properly. And also, of course, we know that the pandemic had big impacts on how they and other scientists did their work. So it seemed essential to mention that. But of course, then the whole thing is still going on. So here we are. Well, in this three-year project... Any moments that stood out to you that maybe we didn't make the story, but you really, really enjoyed hearing about? 
I think one thing that I really enjoyed was going on a walk with Dan and Ali in the Peak District, which was uh, incredibly windy, so windy that uh, listeners will not hear this because it's really just white noise. But yeah, it was nice to see the kind of way they take time off from their working day. Uh, Sheffield also has some beautiful botanical gardens that we walked through with them on, on Ali's route to work. And that was probably a big highlight for me, actually. Uh, when we spent a weekend with them to really get to know them very well, ask them how they met each other, go to dinner, go for a walk. But yeah, it was a lot more difficult to record that side of it. I thought that was a beautiful moment of absurdity, that whole walk, actually, because we're all wired up with microphones and we're going to go on this little walk. And I remember I had gloves and maybe a hat with me, but I, I sort of looked around. I thought, mm, no, not going to need that. And so I just left him in the car. And then we start walking. And I think Richard was dressed for an event later that day. When we go back to London, you had some sort of a like a family event. So you had like nice trousers and nice, you know, dress shoes on. And the walk is fine at first, but then we start sort of scrabbling a little bit over rocks. And then the wind picks up and I am <laughs> freezing and all five feet of me, I'm just trying not to get knocked over by the wind. And we have these microphones on. There's no way we're going to get any sound. And it was just this hilarious sort of you know, two Londoners set off in the, into the Peak District, <laughs> woefully unprepared. And I, I will say that I did spend a good couple of hours like I can rescue this audio. Yeah. But there was there was no way. There's, it, it is lost. It is lost to time. I think. But Carrie, anything for you that stood out that we maybe didn't talk about in the podcast or in the written feature? I guess one thing that we maybe mentioned on the fly because we did spend, as we've said, a long time talking to Ali about her science, and I already have a soft spot for neuroscience. But at one point, she was talking about the particularly long axons that run, you know, down the spinal cord, and some of the proteins that she studies. If she was to study them in the axon that's living, they take like weeks to get from one end to the other, and it just gave me this great kind of image of how easily something like that could go wrong in a disease and how important it is that people like her want to study the basic sort of molecules that make up these these sorts of processes so it's very different from a really windy walk in dress <laughs> shoes but um you know listening to her talk about that and finding some really accessible examples was certainly a highlight for me I actually I remember learning that for the first time from this experience and thinking that kind of changes how I think of the body working in a way. I mean, because it's just so slow. I mean, if something takes weeks to go down that far, you can't respond to changing environmental conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, yeah, that kind of blew my mind. What do we think then that this project has achieved? Now that it's written and, and the podcasts are made, like, what has it done? I think it's given an upstream view of science as it's done. This is just what life is like. I think it's something that journalists really struggle with, not to tell the triumphant struggle the story that fits neatly into one of the archetypes of how all stories are told because we all know that that isn't how science is done but it's hard to find ways of, of bringing that across it was a real pleasure to get people to say yes to this as well i mean we've just been so lucky to work on this at times it's felt reasonably overwhelming but to have people say yes to this project crucially to have ali and dan allow us to follow them for three years is a really unusual opportunity and i think something that i'll look back on with a lot of pleasure and last one then i mean can you envision or i mean would you like to do something like this again how's that for a question i keep threatening them with a sequel yeah we'll just check in again because we've done about five last interviews with them right <laughs> so I, oh you know in a few years we'll do the sequel we'll be back i would love to do something like this again actually yeah i mean so some things that inspired us as we were doing this kind of project was stories that we and other people have done where you're in a particular situation like i've been for 24 hours in a synchrotron, which was very tiring. And when you get locked inside a synchrotron at 3am because your passes aren't working, quite frightening as well. 
And, you know, we have read and listened to great stories where journalists go to a place, the border between the US and Mexico or the Arctic or just a, a diner at midnight and just report what goes on there. And these stories are situated in particular places in time. And here it was just such a a really open-ended and amazing thing to be part of. I'd love to do it again. I don't know what I've learned that I would do differently because I think the hardest thing is that you've got to suck up every detail and you've got to keep sucking up every detail every time for years and you don't know what's going to come out at the end. And so much must be discarded. So... Yeah, I'm excited to find out what listeners and readers think. Um, But having chatted about this with all of you, I think that maybe our next project should be that some journalists should follow us while we follow some scientists. Because I think (laughs) listening to our reflections is a really interesting discussion about what journalism is as well as what science is. Is this where we get the Mandelbrot? Someone follows them, following them, following us, and it goes on forever, right? I'm I'm not greenlighting that. (laughs) Well, I think that's about all we've got time for for this very special bonus episode of Starting Up in Science. Of course, listeners, you can find the podcast and you can read the feature over at nature.com slash news. But for now, all that's left to do is say thank you to Kerry, Richard and Heidi. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.